0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Jones, and welcome to Think About It, a conversation about life as a neurohospitalist. As a physician in a small group of medical providers in Western North Carolina, we spend our working days managing all manner of acute and chronic neurological conditions in a large referral hospital. I think it's worthwhile to explore the day-to-day realities of healthcare from this very particular perspective it's fair to say that there are a lot of other podcasts that cover the current research and science around what we do and why, and that is not what's happening here. Here, I want to talk about the work and the people who do it. Neurologists have been around for a long time, managing epilepsy, migraines, stroke, and neuropathy, but this subspecialty of neurohospitalist is fairly new. When I was training to become a neurologist, this was not an option. It didn't exist. But that changed with the acute time-sensitive management of stroke care. Turns out, managing the office was hugely disrupted by the urgent requirements of emergent stroke treatment. So, this week, I wanted to start right here at home with my group, Mission Neurology. I'm going to explore how we came to be and some of the memories from the earliest docs on board. There are 12 of us, 7 docs and 5 advanced practitioners, but it all started about 20 years ago with Dr. Reed Taylor, Dr. Taylor was the first neurologist hired by the hospital, and he has consistently worked to keep us on the front lines in adopting new treatments, expanding our services with telestroke, and setting a generally high bar for those who followed. And in a lesser known fact about him, he spawns fish and beetles in his office for fun. I talked to Reed about some of his early experiences in this job, so let's hear what he had to say. To start with, tell me about your background. Where did you train? And how long have you been here?
1: Well, I I got my medical degree from the University of Florida and graduated from there in 1983. And then I went down to to the USC in Charleston and stayed there for four years. I actually started out in the the pathology slash neuropathology uh, department for a couple of years. And then uh, when I got my, finished my neurology training, I went for a a fellowship at the University of Vermont, uh, and then 1988 is when I came to Asheville. So I've been here since 1988.
0: And and you came to Asheville and joined uh, what kind of a practice?
1: Well, Mountain Neurological Center was a hybrid group of neurologists and neurosurgeons, and I uh, uh, I was very fortunate to get started out there. And I'll with keeping with the theme of neuro hospice, I'll tell you that one of the first medical staff meetings I ever went to. There was a discussion uh, about, uh, and it was in a tiny room when you think about the size of the medical staff, it seems so small now, but uh, the discussion then was about admitting stroke patients and there was a talk of neurology is going to admit stroke patients on even days and medicine is going to admit them on odd days. And I remember just sitting there and I took out a piece of paper and I wrote, don't strokes affect the brain? And I underlined brain in case you didn't get it. And I slid it across the table to Dr. Durham, spooky Durham, Cecil Durham, who's uh, uh, one of the neurologists at the time. And he looked down at it and he kind of put his hand over it and he just kind of slowly crumpled it up. (laughs) And the the next day uh, I was recounting this event to Dr. John Ledbetter, who's another neurologist here in Nashville, who, who said, you just wait when you've been doing this for 30 years, you're going to be, you know, you're you're not going to want to admit these stroke patients all the time. So you have to remember that in those days, if you worked in your office and you were on call at night, you start, you'd say, okay, it's five o'clock. I'm now on call for emergencies. And if you admitted a patient and they had, let's just say Guillaume barre or they had a large stroke, you were expected to round on that patient every single day while they were in the hospital. We did cover each other's patients over the weekend. You would have to get up day in and day out and come to the hospital. And so you'd often see one or two of your other partners there in the hospital. Everybody would be making rounds, which come to think of it, it was terribly inefficient and it wasn't until Dr. Rob Armstrong came along and I don't even remember exactly when that was. It must've been about uh, 1995 or 1996. And he said, what we're going to do is you're going to have a rounding doctor for a week. And that person is going to round on all the patients during the day people still take call at night but this person is going to be there and therefore you could get to the office on time you don't
0: have to worry about you know this day i've got
1: to remember to go see a patient in the hospital
0: and if you were the rounding doc you just did the hospital you just
1: came to the hospital and the other thing is when back when you admitted the patients and you also had office if they called you at you know 10 45 and said mr mcgillicuddy is deteriorating there was nobody to call there was no hospitalist group. There was nobody else. And so that group that I was with, Mountain Neurological Center, was neurologists and neurosurgeons. And, and uh, as time went on, as there often is in the partnership, there was some disagreement about how you're going to pay the bills and who is going to be responsible. And you can either pay the bills by having everybody contribute the exact same amount of money, or you can do it proportional to the uh, the amount of billing that you had. And of course one group wanted one thing and that other group thought another way was more fair. And so we had a professional divorce and at the time, I can't even remember the exact number of, of, uh, neurologists, but it must've been seven or eight. So that just exploded the group. And there were some guys that were older that said, we're not going to, you know, go anywhere else. We might stay here and work for these neurosurgeons for a year or two other guys were itching to get out from under the group uh, and go somewhere else. During all this time, one of the things that we would talk about was, what do you order on a patient when they're in the hospital? What is the stroke workup? And so that was the development, it seems old hat now, but at the time it was, it was groundbreaking innovation. Uh, we, we had clinical pathways where we'd sat down and said, the patient has a stroke then you, you know, you write down for them to get DVT prophylaxis and you might order up an echocardiogram and you order up, uh, you know, physical therapy and you make that an automatic order set. And so I'd spent a lot of time uh, working. Uh, Karen uh, Sanders was a, a nurse who sort of was showing me the ropes of how you do that, one of which is you get data. You don't go to the doctor and say, how many patients have you seen that have X? Because if you're like me, you say, oh yeah, I've got 10 patients that had that. And then then go to the next doctor who said, I've never seen that in my career. So you have to go and gather all the information and and figure out what you do and look at length of stay. And we sort of had the concept of the admission and diagnostic phase of a hospital stay, the therapeutic phase of the hospital stay, and then the disposition phase of the hospital stay we we got that figured out so when that group Mountain neurological center exploded my view was oh i thought i was probably going to go with some of the other people in my group and open up an office but the the different um proclivities of the other people in the group just made it clear that that i should probably go look to the hospital excuse me the hospital did not come to me with open arms in fact the the because of the nature of professional divorce you know people take sides in divorce and the the sides <laughs> that the hospital took was decidedly uh, about the neurosurgeons and so I had to sort of go through an interview process even though I'd been here for 15 years or so and as part of that there were neurosurgeons in the room and their their most important concern was, you know, are you going to take intracerebral hemorrhage patients? Because until then, any patient with blood in the head went to neurosurgery. They did all patients with intracerebral hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, everything. You know, it was not an automatic, you know, the hospital, which around that time, uh, one of the the chiefs of staff, um, Bob Reynolds, was developing the concept of hospitalist and had found founded the hospitalist group that still exists, but has gone through different iterations. And so that was sort of the idea of what about a neuro I don't even think that just what about a hospital? that it was a neurologist. And it was Bill Brannon, who was one of the chiefs of staff at the time, or somebody high up, I don't think he was the chief of staff, but he When I went to him, and I was worried because the group that I was in was going to go kaput, and just like everybody else, I needed a job and a paycheck. And I thought, how am I going to survive? And you know, am I going to get hired? And and Bill Brannon, a very gentlemanly uh, person, said, "Of course, this is the right thing to do, and of course we're going to give you a job." And it was at a significant cut in pay and they only want to give me a contract for six months. Because it was I such started. a, did
0: they have any, I mean, I'm thinking about it then, there was like not a model to look towards, I guess other than hospitalists, not right. neurohospitalists, but then you don't have the same volume necessarily as a neurohospitalist, like you can't expect necessarily the same number.
1: Well, fortunately, the, 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 the concept of neurohospitalist had been broached by bob reynolds and so if you imagine my coming to the hospital every day to round on patients and every other neurologist doing that every internist in the city was doing the same thing and so if you had somebody sick in the hospital so there'd be a massive traffic jam coming into the hospital at six in the morning or whatever and then there would be a massive traffic jam for everybody getting to their office by eight in the morning and the concept of hospitalists was like why don't we get somebody else to do this and so that was that made that idea something to think about and i don't really remember um the process of anybody sitting down and saying well if he sees x patients a day and does this and that it was more like well if we've got somebody here taking care of stroke patients then that might make us more efficient and we're going to get things done more easily but it and was had stroke easy.
0: care changed yet when that was happening were we doing tpa and stuff or well, was that just coming the, up
1: the nins uh the the original TPA um, article was, I think, 1996. And I had spent a lot of time going around to different hospitals and trying to promote giving thrombolytics. And it was very much an uphill battle for multiple reasons, including other neurologists who were not interested in doing it. The concept of how you get called, who's going to come in in the middle of the night, what's going to happen, how you recognize that. So that really wasn't, uh, if you think about other people who are very very important as we were making these these order sets and these clinical pathways we call them what how's the patient going to navigate their hospital stay and there was a concept of a of a and i the terms have changed so much i i think it was um not nurse navigator but there was some name that we were using for what it meant to have you know a nurse that might be involved in these patients when they were in the hospital, they would come by, they would help educate people and different people had done that job, but it was only when Robin Jones, who was a well uh, experienced RN came along and said, first of all, she knew everybody. She knew the system, knew everybody in Western North Carolina, knew everybody in this hospital system had done just about every job he could do in neuro. She was working in the ER. She came along and helped to promote the the whole process of doing code strokes, and she came up with the concept of uh, the code stroke, just the idea of what are we going to call this when somebody has a stroke, and then also nursing staff that was on the sixth floor, which is the neuro floor. Uh, one of them would be designated as a code stroke nurse, and he or she would come down to the, see the patient when they were in the. In the emergency room and be like an experienced person to help shepherd the person through the system and that was the start of our being able to efficiently do thrombolytics and when that happened you know she was the one that helped say if a patient comes in at this point in time call a code stroke somebody will come there and see see the patient until then you often got a call And somebody would say, well, I'm seeing somebody and I don't really know exactly what's going on, but maybe they're a little weak. And And if you're busy, you might think, oh yeah, I don't think that's a code stroke. But once we started in with the expectation we were going to see all those patients and you started examining all those patients and doing NIH stroke scores on the patients, I learned, wow, a lot of these patients I'm hearing about all over the phone, they are having a stroke we didn't recognize it at the time because nobody was really seeing them or only it would be recognized later. So getting the neurologist in house, uh, involved. And so at first, when it first started, I, I asked for a job. The hospital hired me. I came and I did everything by myself.
0: And that was what year around? That
1: was 2004. Okay. And the hospital recognized right away, we need to get somebody else. And that's when uh, they started looking around for Dr. Schneider and his expertise and came along and, and also around the same time, got a nurse practitioner involved. When Cindy Pearson came and we, we had really the core of a team so that we could see people and we would divide up the patients during the day and, uh, and get them seen and respond to, to code strokes and, as well as consultations. Cindy was also extremely experienced, so that she was able to really, from the get-go, start seeing patients. And and we, Dr. Schneider and myself, just sort of had the attitude: if you ask for a neurology consult and this nurse practitioner comes, that's your neurology consult. Uh, we didn't have a view that this person was coming along and just kind of taking the H and P and doing things she was very very well uh prepared and completely competent to take care of just about any problems rarely did i see a problem that i thought i would have done it differently more often i would see what she did and think oh yeah that does sound like a good idea <laughs> so um she was very very good at that and that that really you know that was the and start and i think of alex things. had
0: mentioned some to ask you about some early early
1: Oh, I remember the day that she got here, I had not been the dentist and I don't know how long. And so I had this dental appointment and I said, okay, I'm glad you're here. Here's a pager. I'll see you later. And I I can't remember what I did with my pager, but as I was waiting in line to leave the dentist's office, I said, Oh, I guess I've turned this off. And I turned it on. And there were like 24 pages on it. And she had had, she had, I can't remember two or three code strokes. And one of them was in the, radiation oncology which i challenge you right now to tell me where that no is no idea she had to go find it she had to go see the patient in radiation oncology
0: <laughs> that and was her first day that was her
1: first day <laughs> of the first day and and i think um maybe i had a phone too because you have to remember this is long enough ago that it was not everybody now has three phones in in every way but it wasn't quite as universal as it, as it is now and so I remember turning my pager on, seeing all these things, saying, "I guess I better look at this." And there were all these messages. And she, of course, she handled it one hundred percent fine. I mean, it was it all worked out. Yeah, I think I was in her <laughs> debt for for months after that. Still am in her debt after
0: that. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're just getting laughing gas, and <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: meanwhile, I was slurring all my speech because the right side of my face. Yeah, not-
0: yeah. All right, so so then so so you came here. You did it all single-handedly as the hospitalist, but was that nights too, or what was nights? The the nights
1: were shared with the um, the remaining doctors in town, including some of the doctors gone out. So we out into the group from my previous group, and so they would do that, and even occasionally do some weekends. So.
0: There were that's still, what I remember coming into. Yeah, too. there
1: were still yeah. people who would come on We'd the weekends. Cover nights, cover weekends, nights, and
0: cover weekends mm-hmm. here and there. I think, I want to say when I first came, we had to sometimes cover, did the outpatient neurologist have to go in the middle of the day sometimes to take care of strokes? I mean, not while you were here, obviously. or I mean, you couldn't do every day. So there must have been some days when some office took care of. No, so,
1: once, once I started... Fortunately, my health held out. I mean, Alex came very, you know, it was only a matter of, you know, a few months. But then you were started. doing,
0: you were basically taking care of the strokes here all the time and then nights and weekends you shared with the outpatient. And, and
1: I, I want to emphasize, I didn't take care of every stroke. I got called for code strokes. I got called for consults. It was a brand new position. We started out Dr. Schneider, myself, Cindy Pearson, we were hardworking, we were reliable. Sometimes people would call and say, what's happening? And I would just say, this is what's going on. Our model was we were paid a salary. So it was not as if I felt I had to do every single thing all the time. If I felt like things were too busy, I would just say, this is what I would do. And and fortunately, our, you know, experience and reputation with such people say, yes, I will do it. So we were able to down, And even to this day, sometimes we get called and it's so busy, we have to say, I, I can't do this right now. And, it, you know, that's that's still the way we do things right, to a right. certain extent.
0: And I was thinking, I was talking to Alex some about that, the the way that something, luckily, the two of you had just as sort of, well, I guess it was different than when I was in training with, like, say, residency, when, um, you know, you'd always try to block a consult or, you know, you, I guess the MO in, a, in training is more trying to get out of stuff, and then it was quite different here. You know what I mean? Like, you guys had an open attitude about... I feel like there was something very fortuitous about having this attitude, like, I want to be a help, and I, I want to make my services, you know, available, helping other doctors, helping patients, instead of trying to just do the block all the time.
1: I I completely agree that we did not start out with the view that we're blocking things we got calls from the region there's 17 counties in western north carolina we we started out that with a vision i think that we articulated more or less clearly to one another and the rest of the people on the team that we are taking care of all patients in western north carolina if we got calls we accepted patients we transferred people and yeah i mean i I, I'm still to this day, trying to work on how to do this whole thing just from home without having to set foot in the hospital. But you know, you have to work and you have to yeah. see people. And we, we most of the time took things. It wasn't really that true. But I, I totally agree that when you're a resident, you're told uh, if somebody is a wall or whatever the name is for somebody that doesn't right. admit anybody, and that that is a that is a compliment when somebody says that. Obviously, that's not the case here, and you have to remember that I had been working as a well-compensated, you know, neurologist in a group, and then I was hired on. Was saying we're only going to hire you for six months. I mean, I didn't feel like I had a lot of leeway to just say, oh yeah, I'm going to sit around and not do anything. I, I was, in fact, we had a view that we wanted to get involved in as many things as possible. So if there was a committee that was reviewing how things were done, we say, oh yeah, we'll go to that. Um, when they wanted to talk about doing electrophysiology in the operating room with Parkinson's disease, I said, "Oh yeah, I'll learn how to do that." Um, and we were doing the patients with subarachnoid hemorrhages, which we all learned—or I learned it 100% on the job. Uh, that was before there was a, you know, stroke certification. Uh, Alex had done a, a fellowship and is very well qualified, but I. I Took the exam and got grandfathered in for those things, and tried to get involved in as many things as I could to say yes, we are, we are worthwhile. And and uh, we used to say they're going to have to do a wide excision if they want to get rid of us because <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of viable material that's yeah. around them.
0: All right, so how about going then from the outpatient? So one of the questions I asked Alex was, you know, in training, you know, I don't know about you, you probably similar to me thought you're life would look if you unless you were planning academics mostly outpatient covering the hospital like we've talked about the model was and there was no such thing as neuro in fact i think i read even in 2011 um, something like the neurohospitalist society opened and said like we'll see if it sticks mm-hmm. you know like if it's a, even a thing now they're fellowships right but um did you feel like right away like yeah this is great or did you miss the outpatient or what kind of things do you still miss about the outpatient, if any?
1: Well, I've been in a practice for a long time, and there are certainly a lot of patients that when everything was going on would say, you know, this, this is going to be hard for me. And if you are ever wondering what sort of impact you're having as a doctor, you are, of course, and we all know this seeing people when they're very vulnerable and they, they are bonding with you and you are trying to help them. And that it's not just, it's certainly at that time and i'm assuming still in 2022 nobody just said oh yeah you're just making a move for the good of your career there there were people who were very upset about that but i had spent a lot of time and effort in the hospital trying to build up the in hospital therapy so
0: i felt in that way that that was the right thing for me do you think if there had been that as an option like a neurohospitalist when you were training that you would have
1: i don't think i was smart that? enough to figure that out the reason i did Neuromuscular disease, part of it was I said, yeah, I'm going to learn how to do neuroconduction studies so I can always have some sort of, you know, extra thing to do besides, you know, sitting in an office and seeing patients, you've got something to do that's something extra. I don't think I I would have. I thought in my mind, and I was very interested in stroke because at MUSC, we saw a lot of stroke patients. I'd done some things with staining rat brains and measuring the size of strokes and so forth. And I thought this is all gonna be good, you know, okay. or being a you know outpatient. Yeah, doctor.
0: yeah. I, I don't those relationships with patients.
1: Yeah, there's there's yeah. patient relationships. But it's very, you know, to me, confining because you gotta get up and somebody says, Here's your schedule. And when you look at the other people in your in your group, the people who out of that divorce that went out to, you know, open their own practices, the reason that they are so successful from the compensation point of view is that they are really good at seeing a lot of patients. And I never was very good at that. You know, I, I, I think that is a drag on you. Whereas here in the hospital, you, you know, you, you certainly need to be efficient and it's very important to figure out how to get through the day and get everything done. But it's not quite the same you know, urgency to see yeah thirty five. I feel that too, the...
0: and like if you take a long time with somebody unexpectedly, there's not you know ten people lined up behind that to kind of all of a sudden be angry that you're delayed.
1: Right, or there there are ten people lined up behind that, but they unfortunately for them they're all sick and in the hospital, and so it's it's not as if they don't have anything else to do, but they are there, and you know where you can find yeah, them. and so it, it does reduce some of the, the, uh, urgency. I do remember when I first started, I it probably wasn't even a neuro hospital. It's just making rounds one weekend. And I was going to a part of the hospital that was very much in the distance. And when I got there, it was kind of late. And I came in, and I was started out by sort of apologizing and the, the family said, I know medical emergency. And I was like, well, not really. Just a bunch of other people, just about as sick as your family member that I was taking about the same amount of time that I'm about to take with them. But it did take me some time to take care of their problem. What about your problem? Because it really, you know, it sort of irked me that they were used to people making excuses, which I've, I've probably done that myself. But really, it was. um Yeah, you got to go through and get the job done. And sometimes people do take longer because. They they're needing help,
0: right? Yeah, that that's definitely it. But but I I think that just the fact that they're not expecting you at some time most of the time. Right, when your appointment says yeah. twelve
1: fifteen, yeah. then at twelve twenty seven you're thinking, okay, I've been waiting. You yeah, know, I got here thirty minutes early and I filled out all my paperwork and I got everything else. But that's that's a different topic. Just the the reality of medicine in twenty twenty
0: two. Yes, yeah, changed so much. Yes. So what I want to do with this is kind of try to tell the story some of this program because I think this program is pretty special. Like as I look at friends and just you know obviously I don't have a window on all neurohospitalist groups, but a community hospital with twenty four seven inpatient neurologist doctors available. We're a referral center for the region. We do a lot of telestroke. We care for the entire region, like you say. I think it's all on the you know the Foresight that you and Alex had in developing this program, I think, because it could have just been like you know seven on seven off. I'm done. Bye.
1: Well, the well, you you mentioned twenty four seven, and I, I want to remind you that when we first started out, it wasn't twenty four seven. somebody else was taking call, or uh, and then there came a time when we were taking call, and it was only the in uh only the neurohospitalist nobody else in the community was involved they didn't have to do anything but we would do it from home and then we made a decision uh around i can't remember when it
0: was it 2015. was around 2016 so yeah 2015 yeah. 2016 20, we did, yeah. we're
1: going to do this 24 7 in the hospital that also made a huge difference and and if you look at some of the the way that you move things forward is you get you get a decision maker at the bedside as quickly as you can and that really will drive your times down if you if one of your outcome measures is door to needle time now there are many other things to measure and i'm not saying door to needle time is the most important thing but but clearly you really make a difference by saying we're expecting the doctor to be here and you know you get a call patient's going to arrive in 10 minutes you can be there before the patient gets there and and that was you know that has been a big change that and i think we we have been very open about our our use of of uh, advanced practitioners we started out with with Cindy Pearson an exceptional person in every way could do the whole job we got other people that worked with her and uh, and other advanced practitioners and we have been expecting them to perform at the highest level to see patients to make decisions to we have to check in with them and manage them uh, and make decisions about getting people discharged and and i think that collaborative nature has really paid off the other thing is that the, the list i heard alex talking earlier about sort of the number of patients and there were days when you would just be answering the phone continuously or running off the code strokes, uh, continually. And, and you'd think I've only seen six people today. And meanwhile, the list would have 35 people on it and you'd be trying to run through the list. And then the next day the situation would be reversed. But we, we talked about situational awareness. If there's a long list of patients then keep up with what's going on, don't just pay attention to the three people you need to see if you happen to be somewhere and all of a sudden a new consult comes in, then whoever was close by might see that patient. And that is, I mean, you can't write a prescription for that. You cannot write, if you think about the person who's trying to be a wall or to shirk activities or to feel like you're, you are getting out of something, we, we tried to avoid that. And uh, I think that has paid off because everybody is enthusiastic about about, about getting the job yeah. done and helping each other
0: and like a real camaraderie with the team and everything here. You know, I think that's what what you guys did a great job of sort of uh, setting expectations that you're, you know you're 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 all accountable to each other. I think it just started from early on. You know that there was just a sort of camaraderie that helps. It made us probably weather the acquisition of this hospital by you know big international corporate hospital. When the other services lost good percentages of their providers, we really didn't not because of that. You know, because I think we tend to stay once we come here.
1: Well, I think that I think that's all true. I I, I will say, if you want to hear a story of the history of all yeah. this, of course, when when all this happened, and I had gone and got bill brandon to agree that i could start and and uh, i came on and and um y- you know i had been spending for years lots of extra time and and there were service lines and i was the head of the neuroscience service line at one time or another and i i thought you know yes i'm going to come over and i'm going to work in this hospital and then they are going to you know when this when this program gets off the ground and there's a it's clearly i Will be the person who is like the point person because I am so friggin' important. Obviously, that's going to be recognized. But then when they recruited Dr. Schneider, this guy was very well trained, had a lot more experience in managing things as a as an organizer, and he wasn't going to just come to some small hospital sitting in the mountains of western North Carolina unless they said, "No, actually, you're going to be the head of that," and that. That really has, he has been the driver for a lot of the sort of the bureaucracy of getting everything done, not just the ideas behind it, um, but helping drive that. It really, you need a skill set more than just, yes, I'm here because I care about patients with strokes and I want to you know make sure that we're delivering a good service to the community. But also, how do you do that in a way that fits with the reality of, what everybody else wants. And I don't know how anybody, if anybody was listening to a podcast and wondering how are we going to recreate that where we are? I don't have it. I don't know about that. That was very specific to one person who, who was the right person, that and uh, Robin Jones who came along and said, I'm going to help be a supporter of what's going on here and figure out how to reach out to other hospitals and help,
0: just have this stick-to-itiveness to, it this yes, to, and to say, follow through. This. I think that's the thing I've seen even in my time working here, you know, various initiatives that I've thought, you know, I'm interested in this, let me try this, maybe a, an EEG study or um, reading EEGs. You know, various times in my 20 or 18 years here, I've thought, oh, I'm going to try this little side project or make a podcast. But um, you need to support people you need you need you need good people that are just as incredibly motivated and like invested as you are like even though you're a smart person you can you know you've got good ideas and you can see how to get it done it won't happen on your own if you're just a private practice doctor trying to see patients
1: and i feel like any project that is actually worth doing takes between 2 and 5 years to start out so and i'll give you an example if you think we want to have a let's just pick an EMU you can't just say here's a here's a business plan and we're gonna get five patients and they're gonna say that's great First you have to start out with you know doing a couple of EEGs in the closet somewhere and then you got to you know recruit a tech that can do it and then you got to get all these people and really that takes a lot of time yeah and ideally in my mind, ideally, You either get uh, you get very lucky with somebody that you recruit or you get somebody who has had some interest at that Hospital to help move forward with that. I I don't really know how somebody comes along and says you are responsible for forming a program that never existed Although I I have great admiration for Dr. Snyder. There was the the framework of there was a neuroscience system. We talked about strokes. We had other hospitals that were going on. We we had a care pathway for strokes. And if you didn't have any of those things and you had to create it from scratch, it would be a lot harder than it actually yeah. was.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so back to your six months when you signed up. Oh, yeah. All right, and then six months comes and goes, and how'd that go?
1: Well, let me tell you, at the end of six months, nobody came along and popped a bottle of champagne and said, you're doing such a great job. <laughs> We're going to make this work. They just said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to, you know, in fact, I can't remember. I think when they said (laughs) they were going to be six months and I said, listen, I've been in this community for a long time. Could you just make it for a year? Just give me that, you know, throw me a bone. I think maybe they offered it six months and I, you know, I I, I very, um, you know, wisely, because I'm such a great negotiator, said make it for a year. At the end of that, (laughs) And of course we were working all the time because there was nobody else doing things. And I, I, like many, another person in the world thought, well, this isn't, you know, I feel like I'm being unfairly compensated. So I had to sit down, you know, justify things and write, write that down. Still never have mastered all that. The the idea of, you know, who speaks the language of hospital administrators At, at the time, you could go to the individual vice president and talk to people about what was going on and they they were very um you know you could at least meet with them in their office and discuss things so at the end of that time you know they re-upped me and yeah you know gave me a contract for 18 months i can't remember what it was but yeah some longer time
0: but obviously they were happy with the service and and It seemed like program. things were going well. Yeah. I feel like it
1: helped. I mean, the neurosurgeons had to be happy because we were admitting a lot of their patients, and yeah. they, were, they were an important customer group. So the, the hospital was, you know, was happy that they were happy. But I don't remember anybody. Um, the other thing that happened during all my career here was the, the, the bearing fruit of interventional radiology. Yeah, I I can't remember if if I was had been a neurohospitalist or this was beforehand, but I can remember a patient who presented with a large uh, left hemisphere stroke and they had a T lesion. We we imaged them very quickly and and uh, Dr. Goldstein, the interventional radiologist, who was one of the first people was the first interventional neuroradiologist here. Um, went in and, and uh, did a thrombectomy and I have no idea what he used at the time because this was a long time ago he probably just sucked it out with a straw but uh, <laughs> the next day one of the cardiologists uh, saw me and I, I thought you know we had invented a sliced bread or something and he said oh so neurology is doing interventional cases now huh because I think neurology is known to have You know cardiology envy for a number of reasons and um (laughs) you know we were constantly meeting all the time and i think i think it was understood that we're making a contribution and i know that there are people who were appreciative and we you know at some point they gave out quality awards in the the stroke program got one james keel another important quality improvement person that i knew here at the time gave us that and gave it to neurology because of all what we're doing with the stroke program. And I, I know that we were doing things that were important, but I don't remember anybody saying because of you, this hospital is you know financially in the black, or this is really, you know, we're making, I'm not sure what they thought the most important outcome measure was our most important outcome measure was, are we treating patients and meeting the needs of people and things like how many patients we we're treating with thrombolytics out of the percentage of stroke patients, which has been a steady 20 plus percent since we've been doing this. You know How quickly were we treating patients with thrombolytics? Those were the kind of measures that were required. Along this time, I remember with Robin Jones and I sat down and we thought we're gonna learn how to do Microsoft Access, which is a spreadsheet, or not a spreadsheet, some sort of database so we're gonna put down things and around that time, the American Heart Association had a, a Get With the Guidelines, which is still used today. And they, they had a a program that you could buy and for some reduced amount of money, you could get it. And I remember she came into the cafeteria where I was eating one day and had somebody from, from there who said, and unfortunately I'm sure she'd remember his name, but I can't, um, said, would you all like this? And we of course said, yes, we want that. Will be the first people to start using it, and that was very helpful because you would write down this, you know, the diagnosis, what was going on, so that you could go back later on and say what did you do for all these quality measures? Um, because a good database was is so important to know what kind of job you, you would doing. put
0: in each patient. You would have to put them well, in. Well,
1: yeah, just like everything else, you've got to get somebody who's going to get this information and download them and put them in to get for the yeah. guidelines, and so. As time went on, Robin, of course, was the one who sort of understood you need more people, you need a person to do this, you need somebody who's going to abstract charts, you need people to keep up with this, you need people to make calls. So that's part of why the support team has gotten a little bit bigger. Um, I still think it's probably a lot smaller at this hospital than it is at some hospitals, but we've had a very dedicated group of people who go and look through charts and help answer the questions from the clinical point of view, are we making a difference and I don't think there's any doubt of that but you know it's not always 100% clear what's the most important thing to the yeah to the hospital administration
0: like you said learning to speak that language yes
1: that is yeah. a, that is yeah. you have to be a lot smarter which
0: I feel like is not something I knew at all coming into practice like I just thought oh yeah my job now is just to take care of patients but it's, it's very much programmatic sometimes. Oh, it's not yeah. just that.
1: Even forget that for a minute. When we first made our clinical pathways and we had this printed up sheet of paper, and we said, okay, here's a clinical pathway. It's got a list. You check this and it makes all these people do things. These are all on paper. So they're, how are we going to promote this? All doctors were still independent providers. There were still, There were still people who were you know hospitalists and other things but there was not necessarily you know you couldn't just say this is the new way of doing things i naively thought well when we just tell everybody that we've got these clinical pathways and this tells you how to do things and this is the way to do it everybody say, well that's great clearly uh you know dr taylor and dr schneider are, you know smart dudes and we'll just start doing it but they didn't because <laughs> <laughs> there's no you know you have to have you know, a carrot and a stick to make people do things, you've got to, if you want to improve what's going on at first to understand it, you have to gather data. And I talked about that early on. You got to say, you know, this doctor always does this. This doctor never does this. Clearly one of those two doctors is wrong. You have to say, this is the right, you know, this is the right amount and what, what is the bell shaped curve and how do you fit people under that? Then once you gather data, sometimes it's just as important as showing that to the doctors and say you know you were taking too long in the because we were doing everything at the time you're taking too long in the operating room and then a month later you'd see that person had come down because there's regression to the mean and there there was some pressure to mm-hmm. to perform correctly and those are the kind of things that you need to answer the question are you doing the job right uh that that is something that you know that we learned at the time And learned over time because I didn't know either I thought you just would say yeah here's a good way of doing it everybody would accept it no that doesn't work Um, and then you know after you start showing your outcomes you have to publicize it it takes time and effort to let everybody know how they're doing
0: yeah did did you have a concept of how this program would evolve over your Career, or, or or did you just sort of take it as it comes, and and are you surprised by it today?
1: We always had a view that we were taking care. Of. So when in twenty eleven, when when uh, telestroke sort of invented at this hospital, and we were early adapters of telestroke, and we we had some people that were trying to get us involved in that. There are people that said. You know, you're going to be able to see a stroke patient in Mobile, Alabama, and you could see a patient there. and we we had the view that we just care about Western North Carolina. And I think we have very slowly uh, taken in because our this hospital, although it's big and it's got a you know a reputation, a large hospital is can have its detractors, and we have had you know changes from a nonprofit hospital to purchased by a for-profit system and that's changed things and this hospital has got some other uh, auxiliary hospitals but there are other hospitals in the region that are not part of our hospital system and I think it is a measure of our success that we are now starting to have those those hospitals on our telestroke system because they end up sending the patients here for intervention and I see that as a measure that we are despite some fits and starts over the years we are still making some progress into a unified system of neurological care for Western North Carolina. And uh, not necessarily because we're part of a system that owns everything, but more of a collaborative way of doing things. Yeah, That is a topic for another thing. Yeah. How did we initially get those surrounding hospitals, which at the time were not owned by the hospital, to start saying, Yes, we are going to do telestroke and and it seems in twenty twenty two that nobody would be opposed to that, but at the time we had to tread so carefully to say, "We're not going to take over the patient. We'll let you order that. We're not taking over your emergency room. We just want to be available by seeing the patient we had to to do a you know a sales pitch to to you know, gradually gather, gather other hospitals to be part of our. That is
0: surprising, right? Yes, it is surprising.
1: But you still see it now because of these other hospitals that are not part of our system. And so we were pulling ourselves to other hospitals. And then we've had since then some doctors that were pulling us to them because they thought it was interesting and other hospitals that were, you know, sending a they're 20 miles away or 15 miles away from us doing their telestrokes from a place 150 miles away and then wanting to send the patient to us afterwards and we kept saying you know wouldn't you like to just talk to us beforehand that would save a lot of time yeah and gradually that's improving and i i i see that as a you know a measure of continued success
0: you know in that conversation we just heard with dr taylor It occurs to me that a program like ours, Mission Neurology, is what it is because of doctors like him. He was the right man at the right time. There was certainly some serendipity with strong and dedicated colleagues joining in short order, but one thing I heard clearly was how much they embraced change. Whether that was with administering TPA for stroke, or extending the window for thrombolysis, or using telestroke, all of it helped the program grow into what it is today. And admittedly most of us are averse to change. I know I am. For example, recently we've been exploring extending thrombolytic windows for up to 9 hours in line with the stroke trials Wake Up and Extend. And with all honesty, my first instinct is that'll create so many more code strokes and we don't have any manpower for that. The overwhelming hustle of the day-to-day can become a distraction listening to dr taylor discuss the beginnings of this program is a reminder of how keeping the big picture front and central can lead to unexpected success it's a reminder to say yes to change and know that you'll figure it out as you go well that's it for this show thanks for joining me jennifer jones here on think about it where we explore the insights of life as a neurohospitalist Next week, we'll talk to another innovative program developer, Dr. Alex Snyder, about his role in this new subspecialty. Thanks again to my entire neuroscience team and specifically to Drs. Taylor and Snyder for their time.